Would you trade a 1954 Winchester Model 94 rifle for a Savage over and under 24? And Grizzly Bear Defense on this episode of Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast. Hello, everyone. We've got an interesting exchange with one of my patrons on Patreon. Mike and I have been going back and forth about different cartridges and rifles he's interested in. And boy, he really surprised me the other day. Let me read you what he said. Ron, I love the content. I have two questions for you. First, my Sauer 2025-06 has a trigger that breaks at a half pound. Can a gunsmith go the other way and make a trigger heavier? Second, I'm looking to trade my 1954 Winchester 94 lever carbine for a Savage 24V combo gun. It's a 30-30 and 20 gauge, so I can still shoot deer in the woods, 75 yards and less. And now, when it's also tricky season, I don't have to lug two guns around. I don't shoot deer on the run anymore, so one shot is fine. Internet gives mixed reviews. Is a Series B, and it dates to 1976. Do you know anything about this Savage model? All the best, Mike. Hi, Mike. Yes, that trigger should be easily adjustable. Usually there's a screw you turn to increase or decrease the pressure. I'm not sure where it is on the Sauer 2000. Your M94 should be worth a pretty penny, much more than the Savage 24. I've worked with that rifle and I found it a pain because it has, at least in the model that I worked with, an external hammer as well as a safety and the barrel selector switch. You might not have that extra on yours, but I was all prepared to select rifle versus shotgun and pull the hammer, two things to do, but I forgot about the safety when a gray fox came into a call. Click, thumb, click again. By the time I finally remembered the safety, Mr. Fox was gone. That happened again with a coyote. So no big deal once you get used to those extra steps, but it's not a smoothless transition from a normal gun. It is indeed versatile, but not all that nicely made balanced or simple, but it surely will give you the tools to take deer or birds on the same hunt. Good luck. Yeah, you can go to a gunsmith and have triggers adjusted. Even the ones that don't come with a adjustment screw, a gunsmith will be able to hone them down. But that is a real art. So you don't want to mess with that. But boy, these days, a lot of them just have a simple screw that you can turn and they limit it. They might go down as low as one and a half pounds and up to five or six or so. But usually set, I like around three pounds, especially in a hunting gun. You're out in the cold, your fingers are kind of numb or you're wearing gloves or just an accidental discharge kind of thing. You don't want to get too light. We're not out there trying to win a new world's record on a target shoot or something. So don't get too light on those triggers. And Mike is pretty smart here for trying to get it increased from a half pound. All right. Oh, hey, Mike wrote back. Almost forgot. After my reply, he said, hey, thanks, Ron. You talked me out of a trade. <laughs> I might still look for one. I know you like those Winchester 94 levers. I have a newer Browning BLR in 6.5 Creedmoor that fits me better and shoots better for me. 120 grain Barnes bullets. Thanks for letting me know about these Barnes bullets, by the way. So far, nothing but good things have happened with them. Well, great. Glad that's worked out for you, Mike. 
Now, here's another quickie from uh, Jeff, a patron, who really doesn't have anything to ask me. He just wants to commend a manufacturer. He said, I have a meal. I have a Miopta Meostar R2, 1.7 to 10 by 42 scope. And while in Mozambique, I noticed the center sleeve between the ocular focus ring and the power adjustment ring was moving with the turning of either. Of course, this had no effect on the zero. Uh, However, I had to pay attention when adjusting the power ring to make sure the scope was in focus. Last week when I got home, I contacted Miopta customer service, explained my problem. Miopta instructed me to send the scope back and they provided me with the details and the claim number. Today, I received an email telling me he was sending me a new scope. I own four Miopta rifle scopes and two sets of Miopta binoculars. I love the glass. And of course, I'm impressed with the warranty and service. So there's a plug for Miopta. We didn't ask for it. Jeff just sent it in. Uh, I just like to hear that. And I'm more than happy to report on, on companies that have that kind of customer service. I mean, that's worth knowing. It's not guaranteed that everybody's going to get it, but I would imagine that's company policy. If they're good enough to do that for Jeff, suspect they do it for everybody. Now, what have we got here? My dear wife pulled together some things that she'd found on the uh, internet, comment sections to our videos. Somebody named Joseph is commenting on Joseph. We have Joseph Von Benedict doing videos for us now, and this is about him. This Joseph says, doggone it, Joseph. Judged by that hat, I thought you were a cowboy. Dang, now you say you're a journalist? Hmm. (laughs) Well, if you haven't seen Joseph yet, he will sometimes wear a big cowboy hat. And uh, he really is a cowboy. I mean, he grew up with horses and he, he knows how to do what cowboys know how to do. He's not an active rancher or cowboy right now, but he is. I don't know if you'd call him a journalist, but he's definitely a talented, experienced outdoor writer and a darn good one. Uh, We're really pleased to have him working with us. He brings a lot to the table. He's been around the world. He's hunted many, many, many things with muzzleloaders that he's made himself, with flintlocks, with bows. Um, I think he's even hunted with crossbows and, of course, just about every kind of a rifle you can imagine. He is the real deal, and I just love his integrity and his honesty. So if you get a chance, check out some of Joseph's videos. Here's something on bear defense from Dave. Maybe you wouldn't need to defend yourself against a bear if you would just stay out of their territory. I don't walk around a dangerous part of a big city at night and then try to figure out what pistol to use against gangs when I'm in the city. The best defense is to not be there in the first place. (laughs) Well, that is uh, not an unfamiliar approach, uh, Dave, but I don't think it's really working very well. I mean, if we had to stay out of grizzly habitat, we'd have to vacate the entire western half of North America. That was all grizzly bear habitat at one time. So you're going to kick everybody out or you're only going to kick them out of places where the bears are now, which would mean most of Montana, (laughs) a lot of Idaho, quite a bit of Wyoming, because these bears are expanding their range and they're becoming quite aggressive. Uh, I think it was about... Mm, three years ago, two years ago, there was a, a poor woman camping in a town in Montana near the post office, as I recall, and a grizzly bear at night ripped into her tent, grabbed her and killed her. And I heard a story just recently where somebody else was in a town and a grizzly bear got them. There was someone out biking on a trail, grizzly bear got them. Fishermen, 
hikers. You can't just say, stay out of habitat where grizzly bears are, and then you don't have to uh, defend yourself against them. It just, I can understand the sentiment, but humans have lived with bears for a long, 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 long time and other predators, and we've learned various ways of avoiding them and excellent advice to avoid the predators. But come on, you go to Alaska fishing and you're in grizzly bear habitat. No one's ever going to go to Alaska again to fish or to photograph Denali or to go hiking. It just really doesn't make sense. It's easy to say, but when you come down to the practical aspects of it, no. Certainly don't recommend you rushing out to photograph some grizzly bear you see out in the field eating blueberries. <laughs> but that doesn't mean you can never go visit Yellowstone National Park. All right, let's see. We've got something on hog hunting with lights. Now, we had a gentleman quite a while ago ask about his handgun with a light on it. He's hunting pigs, taking care of that overpopulation of feral pigs that are doing so much damage with a rifle at night. But sometimes the pigs get all scattered and they come charging in, whether it's in on purpose or not. They're coming right at them. And, you know, the reputation hogs have for taking a bite out of you. So this gentleman wants to know how he can keep a light on his handgun so he can see them coming and then have a holster that would accommodate that light. That was his main question. Where can I get a holster? We got a lot of good responses from folks about holsters. Lots of them out there that will accommodate various handguns with lights. This guy seems to have a different idea. He says, his name is Lawrence. I recommend a laser dot sight, not a flashlight on your pistol for this application. The reason when you walk out and back from your stand, you will also be walking to and from your bait or an active feeding location for those animals. And you will eventually bump into game along the trail, particularly the closer you get. I always have my clip-on hat brim light turned on when walking through the field. Going out in the pitch dark is meaningless because animals will hear you and smell you long before your headlamp freaks them out. So I'm convinced that the best option is to use your ears to locate the threat, then simply turn your head to get the light onto the threat, then use a laser dot sight to quickly get your gun's muzzle onto the threat. Lining up front and rear sights, headlamp, light, gun light, etc., is an awful lot to line up when you hear grunting and hoof prints coming your way. <laughs> so all you have to do is turn your head, get that green dot on it, and lay down fire without worrying about sight alignment. Now that seems to make sense. So you keep your headlight on your hat brim and wherever you look, like What's that? You're looking at the charging hog, and all you have to do then is get your gun on him with that little red dot sight or green dot sight, whatever you're using. Sounds like pretty good advice. Hey, thanks for that, Lawrence. Might try that myself if I ever get to go out night hunting for hogs again. <laughs> Eating better is easy with Factors' delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, which is the one I like, and Keto. Get started today and get after your goals. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are are ready to heat and eat so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 and use the code waypointpod50 to get 50% off. That's waypointpod50 
at factormeals.com waypointpod50 to get 50% off. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com waypoint. That's mintmobile.com waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com waypoint. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Many a year. All right, let's go up to Saskatchewan. That's oh, a great province. I have had the pleasure of hunting and fishing in it a few times and wouldn't mind going back. Hello, Ron. I've got a question for you. I recently picked up a 6.5 by 300 Weatherby. Whew, that's a quick one. And I rather quickly found a good load for it. 78.2 grains of, I'm not going to give the whole recipe here because I don't want to get in trouble with somebody who might misinterpret it and build the wrong load. But he's got a great load worked up and his bullet is a 130 grain Hornady CX all copper bullet. He gets five shot groups of 0.71 inches at 100 yards. The velocity is 3,340 feet per second. Ooh, that's whistling. I'm really enjoying this rifle. Recoil is very modest without a break. That means muzzle break. There's no muzzle break on it. My question is, what are your thoughts on this particular cartridge with all copper bullets like the CX or the TTSX on elk? I'm not worried about moose, to be honest. In my experience, moose seem to give up rather quickly. I plan on using this cartridge on black bear this spring, and I'm contemplating selling my 300 Winchester. I assume he means Winchester Magnum and possibly making this rifle my go-to all-around hunting rifle. Thanks for your content, John. Okay, John, I think you're on the right track here. The Obviously, the 6.5 by 300 Weatherby, I think that's our fastest 6.5 now. And you've just given us an example of why 3,340 feet per second with a 130-grain bullet. And you're right, I think, to be using copper bullets because they can stand up to that kind of velocity. If you shoot something fairly close with lead bullets, they tend to come apart or really flatten a lot. So you're not going to have that problem with the all coppers. So I think that is a good choice. And I agree with you on the moose thing. I often told this story about taking a moose with a 120 grain bullet out of a 6.5 out six. And that was going a bit slower than one you're working with. I think I was doing 3,100 feet per second with that one. Um, but one shot did the job on the moose. Elk, yes, they do have a reputation for being a little more durable than moose. So you are probably wise to be considering what the effect will be on them. I honestly think you're going to do just fine. Uh, there are a lot of guys who are going to say, oh, my goodness, a 0.264-inch diameter bullet is too narrow for elk. But there have just been too many taken with various 6.5s. And as most of us know, it's more about the bullet and where you put it than its velocity. Velocity certainly helps. It makes it easier to hit the target. Takes care of a little bit of the wind deflection issues and the range misjudging and all the rest of it. And there's a little more energy in the bullet. And when you've got that copper bullet, you can translate that energy into power. 
that takes out the vitals. So yeah, I think you'll do all right. Now, I'm not going to diss the 300 Winchester Magnum. That thing has just been around for too long and proven itself too many times. I would say that that one is probably a superior choice for elk. But that doesn't mean the 6.5 by 300 Weatherby isn't going to work. So, John, I urge you to suit yourself. Um, I can give you some advice, but that's my opinion as much as anything. Um, you seem to know what it's all about. So I would just say go ahead with your experiments if you want to and use what you have confidence in. That's half the battle right there. All right, we're going to go to Pennsylvania where Vince is writing us. I was re-watching your podcast with Joseph Von Benedict. It was a classic, timeless argument between two knowledgeable guys with different history, tastes, knowledge, and opinions. <laughs> and ages, too. Don't forget the ages. Joseph could be my son. And I'd be pretty proud to have him for a son. He is a good guy. Hey, I have a bone to pick, though. And I rarely, if ever, hear anyone mention this about long-range shooting. Now, I'm talking about beyond 300 yards. My issue is the follow-up, the tracking job after the shot, the recovering of the animal. This is what people need to practice, and you only get it through experience. And you can only experience it by setting yourself up successfully with easy scenarios. By that, I mean tracking jobs that are not started from very far from your shooting position. I guarantee many animals are lost because people simply cannot locate the spot the animal was standing on or the area they ran into after the shot. And therefore, they can't locate blood sign or track simply because the canyons and the terrain and that needs to be traversed to make it 600 to 800 yards farther away. Huh. Terrain looks a lot different as you move through it versus looking over it. I've tracked many animals for people who couldn't read the sign under their feet, let alone half a mile away. <laughs> Note, don't offend hunting partners. It wasn't any of you. <laughs> He's not saying it's any of you guys. <laughs> I have a long, successful history of hunting and helped many people find their game. And I have found we all can be better woodsmen. And I'd rather see that happen more than I care to see another gong run at a thousand yards. No slight to a great shot. It has its place, but we've got to know how to track. Thank you, Vince. All right. Those are some good points, Vince. And it brings up this, oh gosh, years ago when people started shooting the 50 BMG and some custom heavy rifles, they would get on a mountainside or the, uh, the side of a forest service road looking out across big elk country until they saw a suitable elk and they would shoot him knowing that they had enough power in that bullet to drop him. But then they would find out that they had that canyon you're mentioning in between them, or maybe several, and the woods. And as you say, when you're looking a half mile to a mile across something like that, yeah, it doesn't look bad. And when you start to traverse it, oh my goodness, you're pretty soon lost. And without some way to mark that position, you might never find it. And even if you do, if you wound an animal and you get up to him quickly, you can finish him off. But if you're taking 15, 20, half an hour to get there, he could be long gone. And those things have to be taken into account. Those are good points. I'm glad you brought those up. And, and Joseph likes to talk a lot about long-range shooting because he played around with it, studied it seriously, done some competitions with it. And he likes to shoot gongs and the things you're talking about here. But he does advocate being a hunter and getting as close as you can. But he also sees the value 
in training to shoot at those long ranges in case you have to finish something off or help somebody out on a long shot. And there's certainly good advice. The better you are at shooting at all distances, the more effective and better a hunter you're going to be. All right, John from Colorado. Hi, Ron. I enjoy your show immensely. Thank you, John. I appreciate that. I'm new to longer range target shooting and I'm trying to decide between a 6.5 Creedmoor and a 6.5 PRC. My question is how many rounds can I shoot in one session at the range before I have to worry about harming my barrel? I'm assuming a 75 degree day. I've read that the Creedmoor has an overall longer barrel life. Any thoughts? Yeah, I do have some thoughts on that, John. And it's not how many rounds you shoot in a day, it's how quickly you shoot those rounds. You can get it all done in 20 minutes if you go to bang, da bang, da bang, bang, bang. <laughs> so what you want to do is allow your barrel to cool between shots. You might shoot three times, four times um, with the 6.5 Creedmoor before your barrel temperature gets up high enough to where the metal stressing is becoming more serious and it starts to break down more quickly. With a PRC, because you're burning more powder, your flame temperature is greater and you're going to push that down the same narrow bore, there's where you start to burn out your throat, your lead, that first part of the barrel that ramps up from the uh, throat in the mag in the chamber on up into the barrel itself. You start to crack that. It's the heat and a little bit of the chemical changes that occur from burning that powder that cracks that surface up. And then that begins to rip your bullets and then they lose their accuracy potential. Uh, so that's what's happening. So don't worry about how many you shoot in a day. Worry about how many you shoot in a minute. <laughs> shoot one, let it cool. You uh, go to a shooting range where there's an experienced gentleman or woman shooting um, pretty much any rifle they want to maintain maximum accuracy with, and they may wait three to five minutes between shots depending on the temperatures. And I've seen folks who will cool their barrels with various fans and hoses and sometimes even put wet rags over it for evaporative cooling. And I've done that. Terry cloth towel, lay it over the barrel, have a lot of water run over it, cools it down really quickly. Some people say, oh, then you got a rusty barrel. No, it dries off so quickly that it doesn't rust. And when you're done with your session, you oil it and everything will be fine. But there are ways to tame things down if you're in a hurry and you need to shoot a lot. But generally, that's the problem, shooting consecutively a lot. All right, let's go to Ohio where Milt writes in, I'm an older hunter and I'm fairly set in my ways. And if it's not broken, don't fix it. <laughs> Back in the late 90s and early 2000s, I switched from partition style bullets to ballistic silver tips for all of my Western hunts. They were fast and the accuracy was excellent, but I experienced significant meat loss from impact hemorrhaging created from these bullets. I would regularly lose a large portion of the front quarter shoulder on my deer and antelope taken with these bullets. As a result, I returned to using my old partition style bullets. As I look at the new calibers being introduced, I'm very impressed with the performance on paper and I'm definitely motivated to begin using these calibers. However, I stop every time when I think about the bullet designs and my past experiences. Can you address the concern regarding potential meat loss on game taken with high BC bullets like the Hornady ELDX in the new calibers? Yeah, I think you can, Milt. It's not so much the new calibers or the high BC bullets. It's just the bullet construction. 
you know, your partition bullet is the famous partition with the wall, horizontal wall, transverse in the cartridge, which keeps the lead in the back while the lead in the nose tends to break up and or get lost. But there are a variety of controlled expansion bullets these days that really limit the violent expansion of the bullet. And the simple way to look at it is the less the bullet expands, the less tissue it damages. That's part of it, but there's also this hydrostatic or hydrodynamic shockwave thing that can carry through an animal and disrupt some tissues and get bloodshot meat. But there's no cut and dried absolute. The one trick is to not hit major muscle groups. That's why so many Americans concerned about the best possible meat strive to get that bullet just behind the shoulder. So then you're only hitting a rib at most and you're going into the vitals, the lungs and the heart. And if you line things up right, the bullet doesn't go through the other shoulder on the way out, if it goes out at all. That's probably optimum right there. Lower velocity reduces meat loss. But then of course you've got, you don't have the advantage, the ballistic advantages of high velocity anymore. But the BC of the bullet has little or nothing to do with it, unless it's contributing to the higher impact velocities that you don't want. But I have found that if I work with, say, uh, a Barnes X-style bullet, hammer, cutting edge, Badlands Precision, any of these new copper bullets that don't overly expand, don't tear things up as much. But here's the, a funny thing, and I've reported on this a couple of times already, and I think it's worth saying again. The worst bloodshot meat whitetail I can remember in the last probably 20, 25 years, I took with an arrow, a broadhead. I was using a crossbow last year, hunting with uh, big Kansas whitetails. Great operation over there. First morning, big buck comes in, like 162 inches of antler on this guy. And I took him with a crossbow right behind the shoulder, angling forward out this one. He ran off, thundering away as they do, and into the woods and disappeared. Tracked him up, found him lying there dead, opened him up, and he was bloodshot from the neck through the hams on the back on that side. Now, that wasn't from high impact velocity or a, an expanding bullet. It was just a broadhead. Here's what I think is happening. You cut the right arteries and enough of these vital tissues You've got your blood flowing where it doesn't normally flow, and it gets in between the muscle groups. And when the animal is running like that, he's pumping that through his system. So it's not bloodshot meat from the shot of the projectile. It's from the action of the animal running. And that may be what some of us are seeing on some of these so-called bullets, bloodshot meat animals. Then again, Plenty of times I have hit a major muscle group. The worst is to shoot high and catch that spine and ruin some of the loin because there it's not only the bullet, but also pieces of bone that explode out of there and that tears up meat pretty badly. So take your time, wait for that perfect broad side shot and go behind the shoulder. And I think you're going to minimize your, your issues. And then you're on the right track with a controlled expansion bullet. But the partition, pretty good option. But there, I think you know you're not keeping your ballistics coefficient as high for good ballistic performance. Um, a good option instead of the ballistic tip from Nosler is the AccuBond uh, bonded bullet. It still has the sleek shape and the polymer tip. And then if you go with the AccuBond long-range version, it's even more sleek, higher BC, and you've got a controlled expansion bullet at your disposal.
That, I hope, should work for you, Milt. But good questions, and uh, thanks for being concerned about that meat. Because we eat all sorts of game meat around here and absolutely love it. It's just one of the one of the wonderful things about being an active outdoorsman and hunter. We like try to get as much of our food as we can from nature because that's kind of the way the whole system was designed. <laughs> We're not what you would call Ewell Gibbons, if anybody's old enough to remember him. He advocated all sorts of natural foods, uh, going out in the woods and finding fiddleback fiddle-necked ferns to eat and various fruits and nuts and all this stuff. But we do grow an organic garden and get a lot of our produce that way. And we keep chickens for organic eggs and there's lots of fun, but not as much fun as going into the woods hunting, I'll tell you that. Here's Jerry from South Carolina. Mr. Spomer, I watch your YouTube channel religiously. Ah, religiously, man, that's pretty dedicated there, Jerry. <laughs> I thank you for that. I'm a little confused about barrel twist rate. Boy, a lot of folks are, Jerry. You're not the Lone Ranger on this one. A 270 Winchester with a 1 in 10 twist rate will not stabilize long, heavy BC bullets. But a 300 Win Mag with the same 1 in 10 twist rate will shoot and stabilize Federal Gold Medal Burger Hybrid Match 215 grain bullets perfectly. What advantage does this 300 Win Mag have over the 270 with the same twist rate? Respectfully yours, Jerry. That's a great question, Jerry. Well, you see, the difference is the twist rate, uh, 1 in 10, in each caliber, our cartridge is going to stabilize or not based on several things. The twist rate itself, the length of the bullet, not the weight, the length of the bullet, and the rotation of the bullet. So if you have higher velocity from one cartridge, that will improve its stability a little bit by spinning it a little bit faster, regardless that the twist rate is the same. So the velocity helps a little bit. But mostly it's the length of the bullet. You see that 215 grain bullet sounds like, wow, that one's really a lot heavier than the 270, which would have probably been a 175 or a 160. Why wouldn't they stabilize with the same twist rate? Because the 215 grain bullet in a 308 is shorter than the long bullet you got in your 270. It's the bullet length that determines your need for more twist rate. The longer the bullet, the faster the twist rate needed to stabilize it. And there's a good, simple chart for figuring this out online. Mm. I can't remember it, but it's it's part of the Burger Bullet brand uh, on their website, I think. So just look into Burger Bullets, burgerbullets.com probably, and or do a search for um, bullet stability chart. And you should find that. And you just punch some numbers in, it'll tell you whether or not that bullet is going to be stable at a certain twist rate. All right. Great question, Jerry. Now, here's one from New Zealand from Vincent. And I don't know, I think I've answered this one once before, but he's asking a question that comes up fairly often about Remington 700s, and that's the uh, the bolt handle coming off. Would you please comment on the integrity of the bolt handle adhesion of the Remington 700? I know this has been discussed in format forms before, but I value your thoughts, Vincent. Yeah, Vincent, the deal with the 700 is that the bolt handle is brazed onto the bolt body. It's not an integral part. So it is possible for that to break off right there. And the solution is, well, you can TIG weld it, I guess. There's different ways of welding it to make sure it stays on. But obviously, Remington wasn't doing that. Didn't think they had to. But if you got really aggressive with that thing, you could tear it off. And I actually, once upon a time, believe it or not, did that. <laughs> 
So it does happen. So what, what a lot of custom gun makers are doing, and quite a few companies now, is that you just mill it from one bar stock. They get a chunk of bar stock, and they mill it down to the bolt body and handle, so you're not going to be twisting it off. I don't know if the new Remingtons are doing that. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if they are. And some other manufacturers will literally screw it in. They'll thread the uh, bolt and the handle and then screw them together. So some options to keep things staying together there. And then Luke from Michigan. Hi, I'm trying to figure out the best bullet and or cartridge for a future elk hunt. Boy, you're not the only one, Luke. We're all doing that. And every year it seems like more and more people do it more and more. Ah, so Luke continues, I'm going to Colorado for an elk hunt, and for my first trip, I'm using my dad's 300 Winchester Magnum. Good choice. Great choice, in fact. But I'm looking to get my own rifle for a future hunt. I want to pursue elk, moose, bear, mule deer. <laughs> You're just like the rest of us, Eric, you, or Luke. You want it all. I can't blame you. I did the same thing when I was younger, and by golly, here I am still doing it. So you want to hunt elk, moose, bear, mule deer, and all the rest of these wonderful Western creatures. Should, should I go with a 30 out 6 which I have experience with, or should I buy my own 300 Win Mag? And if so, what would be the best bullet for elk? Thanks. Okay, Luke. You can definitely get by with your 30 out 6 What you get with the 300 Win Mag is more reach. Probably going 300 to 400 feet per second with the same bullets. And that's going to give you a maximum point blank range of, gosh, probably 50 yards more than you'd get with a 30 out 6 But if you like to take your shots close inside 300 yards, say, or even 400, and you know your drops, your 30 out 6 has more than what it takes to cleanly kill an elk with the right bullet. So either one of those will work for you. Now, what about that best bullet? A lot of different answers on this one. I mean, I hear from guys who swear by the burger bullets, which are pretty much a cup core bullet that breaks apart. They, they say they go about three inches into the animal, start tumbling or something, and then kind of explode. And boy, can that be deadly. But then there are times when bullets like that can hit a major muscle group and not get inside before they explode. I've only used burger on game once, and it was a violent damage inside the animal. So there is one option, but you've got to be careful on placement with that one. Then there are the controlled expansion all-copper bullets that expand uh, pretty nicely at high end of velocities and energies. And you've got to be careful with this one because when you get to longer ranges, they may run out of steam and then they don't open quite as reliably. So you end up with a smaller wound channel. Then there are compromised bullets somewhere in between, and there are a lot of varieties of those. Start with your partition from Nosler, the partition bullet that has just your typical cup and core nose lead in the bullet, but the shank is locked in with a horizontal wall, um, and that maintains penetration. So you get kind of the best of both worlds with that. Then there are stouter versions of that, like the Swift A-frame, pretty much the same process, but they make a thicker jacket, and that generally stays together, and the nose lead stays in there. It doesn't break up as much as the partition. Then there are your bonded bullets, where the jacket is molecularly bonded to the lead in the core. 
And those are tend to stick together, but the lead does erode against the tissue. I've pulled some out that look like a perfect stayed in one piece bullet, but they started off at 180 grains. And by the time I recovered them from the animal and looked at that perfect mushroom and weighted it, it might've been only 130 or 140 grains. So obviously a lot of that lead was eroding against the bones and the muscles. And then you've got the issue of lead in the meat. Some people say it doesn't matter. Others say it's a serious health concern. I don't know. Take your pick, but this is what's happening. What other options on bullets out there? There are different hybrids where they might have lead in the shank and a hollow copper nose. Um, the federal terminal ascent is kind of like that. I'm forgetting exactly how that one's built, but boy, a lot of guys are high on that one. So yeah, you've got a lot of options and they all work pretty well for elk. I would recommend the controlled expansion type because an elk is a pretty beefy animal and it's pretty, well, it's a lot more easy to have your bullet fail to get inside on an elk than on a mule deer or white tailed or a sheep or anything else. So that's what the big concern is. You want penetration, especially if you have to take what was known in the old days as a raking shot, which means instead of perfectly broadside, you're at an angle either looking at you or away from you. So you try to slip it behind the last rib and come forward. And that bullet has got to traverse a lot of body tissue. And if you hit a little bit far back, it's going to be pretty watery stuff, absorbs a lot of energy and slows that bullet down. So you don't need overexpansion in those situations. And when you're out hunting, you've spent a lot of time and effort and money to get there. And you've got that opportunity at a bull that's just turning to go back into the woods and out of your life. You might want to take that shot. You're going to have to have a pretty good stout bullet to do the job. And that's another reason that so many people like 300 Magnums and larger for elk. You want that bigger bullet, that more mass and momentum to drive deep. So that was what I would recommend, Luke. And I would say you probably have better odds for success on those borderline situations with your 300 Win Mag than the 30-06. But again, 30-06 can certainly do the job, especially a little closer in. All right, great question, and I'm glad to see so many people asking about bullets. It's been for so long we harped about cartridges and which one's better than the other, and it was really all along it was the bullet that was doing all of the work. The cartridge was just launching it, and yes, a bigger cartridge with more powder launches it faster and harder, but boy, it's still up to that bullet when it gets there. So uh, great questions again, guys, Vincent, Luke, and Jerry, and Milton, John. And Vince and another John and everyone else, I want to thank you for making this possible. You know, without you guys commenting, I wouldn't be able to make these podcast broadcasts. Um, so I really appreciate you. And especially, as I always say, our patrons, if you'd like to join Ron Spomer Outdoors as a patron, go to patreon.com, Ron Spomer Outdoors. We'll sign you up and you'll be part of the program. I'll answer your questions as soon as I get them. You'll get a newsletter. You'll get access to Ron Spomer Outdoors TV. Every once in a while, we'll give something away, even though I warn people, don't click on all these places that say, hey, Ron Spomer here, and I'm giving you your prize you just won. We don't do that. You have to be a patron to get something special. All right. Until next time, once again, hunt on and shoot straight.